This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening, this is your host, Dan Zupanski, for the program, True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history, and the authors that have written about them. By the time Richard Trenton Chase graduated high school, everyone knew he was strange, but no one had any idea how bizarre he had become or what dark impulses were flowing through his troubled brain. The transformation from the outwardly strange young man to the diabolical killer he ultimately became was gradual and would not become known until it was too late. First, it was the killing of small animals and birds and the drinking of their blood. However, when these sacrifices failed to satiate his needs, Richard Chase would seek out the highest form of life, and the city of Sacramento, California, would react in horror to the hideous murders and mutilations committed by his hand. For those living in the quiet neighborhoods where the murders occurred, it was nothing less than a time of terror until the fiend was captured. Vampire, the Richard Chase murders, including 23 photos, is an in-depth look into the life and disturbed mind of a killer, his family, and his many victims, the living as well as the dead. Discover what it was like for the police and what a difficult job they had finding a killer they knew wouldn't stop until he was apprehended. It was a race against time and a series of murders that would stun even the most hardened investigators. It is the story of a city under siege, held captive by the man whose appetite for blood could not be satisfied. The book that we're featuring this evening is Vampire, The Richard Chase Murders, with my special guest, journalist and author, Kevin M. Sullivan. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for agreeing to this interview, Kevin M. Sullivan. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be back with you. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to this interview. This is... uh, for those who have not heard of Richard Chase, um, this will be a program they won't soon forget. Uh, that's certain. Uh, now, I agree. Yes. 
And we, like I said just before I, we went on the air, I said uh, for those that have faint of heart, even for this program, which is the most shocking killers in true crime history, this is one of the more shocking programs when I ask you for some details, and the details are obviously very important to this story, and those details are very, very, very graphic. Uh, let's start off right now with... Um, <clears throat> uh, Tell us, I think the best way to do this is to tell us about the early life of Richard Chase. Uh, tell us, let's go back as far as you found out from all your information and what you've provided in your book, Vampire. Sure. And uh, tell us about the early life uh, of Richard Chase, where he grew up, what was he right. like, what was his parents, what was his early life really like? Uh, Richard Chase was born uh, on May 23, 1950, in Sacramento, California. Uh, you know, the 1950s were a time of prosperity. Uh, our country having gone through the Second World War, a lot of prosperity. But I say in the book that, um, you know, even though it was a time of prosperity, uh, every family is different like every individual is different. And the Chase... The uh, home in which uh, Richard Chase grew up in uh, was in many ways um, standard for a lot of families, and uh, but it also came with a lot of negatives. His mother, and I believe she's deceased now, she uh, and her husband, uh, Beatrice Chase and Richard Sr., uh, uh, were married, and nine months later, you know, uh, Richard was born, and he was the first child to be born in that family. And it appears that the family uh, had problems almost from the beginning, uh, that is, the relationship between Beatrice and uh, Richard Sr. And um, it was not a smooth time uh, for that family. And uh, 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 several years later, I, I would have to check my book, but his sister Pamela was born. And uh, she, I think, is the only surviving member of the family. But uh, it was a time where there was a, a good deal of strife between the parents with the addition of uh, some mental problems on the part of Richard's mother. And she had been a school teacher. But I, I, I go into this relationship in depth. As far as his early years... Um, he had to contend with some things in the home that that weren't pleasant. But if you looked at Richard from the time he was a little boy on up until, uh, say, uh, high school, uh, much of what you would see was pretty normal. He would play Little League, and he was a Cub Scout, and he had friends. Now, when he reached high school, he began to change a little bit, and it's interesting because sometimes uh, people that uh, become psychotic later on or mentally disturbed, sometimes that does not occur until they are up in their late teens and early 20s. And so it, there is a question as to uh, what would have happened to Richard had he not gotten into drugs uh when he was in high school, which, of course, added to whatever mental uh, impairment or illness that he had. But um, uh, he, he he may have 
gone the way of mental illness anyway within his makeup. That it wouldn't necessarily be just the drugs, but I think the addition of the drugs uh, helped him become quite strange when he was uh, in high school. And uh, well, not, I'm sorry. Excuse me. What, what kind of what, excuse me? What kind of drugs are we talking about specifically? And in, in from his, you said relatively normal behavior, despite some problems in the family. But again, right. a lot of people have a lot of problems, uh, right. you know, rocky marriages. A lot of people have gone through that. What right. was the one thing that seemed to be, in terms of his behavior, that seemed to be a shift from normalcy to this odd, more strange behavior? And what kind of drugs was he doing that you say was probably not helping? Uh, or maybe yeah. even been a catalyst for his mental illness. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, I think the catalyst was probably the LSD that he was on. It's, he's listed as having, of course, smoked marijuana, which that did not do what that would not have contributed so much to, to any kind of mental disorder, but the LSD certainly would have. And then he was also on uh, amphetamines. But um, the... Some things that were in his childhood that even though he appeared normal, like, for instance, I thought this was interesting. He was force-fed once by his father uh, when he was two, and then he vomited up all the food. And uh, Pamela Chase, and I, I didn't get to interview her. I couldn't locate her, but I, most everything I'm getting is from the record uh, of, of their home life and the testimony that they had given to the authorities. But... Uh, you know, the father was a really strict uh, disciplinarian, and so uh, they wouldn't butt heads so much when Richard was young, although there could have been some heavy-handed things going on. Uh, like I say, the force feeding, and I think he threw when, when Richard was 11, the dad got very angry with him and maybe threw him up against the wall. Uh, and, um, in fact, that did happen. I think that was in connection with him accidentally uh, – losing a car key. So these made impressions on Richard. I don't know how comfortable he was being a child in that home, frankly. But like I, this is just going to be a part of it. This, there's probably things, it's like with Bundy, we're just never going to know about why he went this way. And, and really, uh, the drugs and the LSD, there was a member in my family. My brother, he got into drugs in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, he was... I know this stuff firsthand, and he 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 became very mentally unbalanced, and uh, he was diagnosed later as a paranoid schizophrenic, and uh, this is all connected with his makeup as well as his drug use in the uh, late 1960s and early 1970s. But he never turned violent. So see, this is the aspect of Chase that we're looking at, mental impairment and mental illness, and yet he went down the way of being a very di uh, diabolical individual. And uh, But we'll get in more to that later about how this is an offshoot and why, why this mental illness that he had drove him in that area. Uh, but there is another factor, too, that in high school, you know, he, he was he was normal in as much as he was a heterosexual, and he he wanted a normal relationship with a girl, but he couldn't perform sexually. He was impotent, and he had a, a hard time sustaining an erection, 
And, of course, this bothered him. And the girls that he dated, a couple of girls, they didn't dump him right away over it, but uh, but they eventually did. And, uh, and I say in the book that whatever else, inferiority and, and insecurity and stuff, all of that became even more heightened uh, during his high school years. I think he had... Um, I'd have to check the book, but he, his first arrest for marijuana, uh, I think that happened in, I think it's 1969, so he would be 19. He would have just been out of school. That was his first arrest, and I got a picture of the mugshot in the book. He's, he's very young there. But uh, it was a very, again, it's going to be, it's going to be the drugs. It's going to be his makeup. It's just, there's going to be some things that when you look at his life, you'll see where all of this, played a part and yet even going down the road of mental illness and, and I don't mean legal it, it, insanity he was legally sane when he committed these murders without question but he was also mentally imbalanced and very heavily mentally ill he was just he was a very very strange individual now you were, you were talking about high school and uh, again we we just kind of glossed over what what behavior now in retrospect was he doing and even people knew uh again not not after the fact after the trial after the the incidents the murders but what was he doing and, and I'm referring to uh, obviously um with the high fears the with the animals what was he doing oh, with animals okay. at this at an early age that you know, again, it's almost text. Well, it's not almost. It's textbook in terms of when we talk about profiling. So, you know, tell us about that. What was he doing yeah. with animals? Well, okay, it's uh, the the the. He was convinced. See, this is see, this is the funny thing. Um, he, although he was legally sane, you know, normal society would look at a guy like this, like, well, he's just gone off his rocker. He's nuts. Uh, Chase developed. Uh, a strong sense of that there was something wrong with him and that he needed blood to sustain his life. And the right. killing of animals, you know, small animals, birds, and the drinking of their blood, without question, he he did this because he thought he needed it. And, uh, you know, he would say strange things. Now, this would be a little... This would be a little later on. When the strangest first started to appear with him, it was in his high school years as he went down the way of drugs. But once he got out of high school, he became really, people knew that that, that, that he was strange. He was mentally unbalanced. He wasn't killing anybody yet. He wasn't killing animals that early. But as things progressed, it went from small animals, and then he started killing uh, dogs. And uh, dogs became a big, and it wasn't just killing the dogs for drinking their blood, but he would eat portions of the dogs as well. Now, he he believed that, uh, he told somebody once, he said, you know, when, when these things started coming to the surface, that he believed someone had stolen his pulmonary artery. That is hard to right. stop. These were, in his mind, legitimate physical things that were going on. This is sure. the difference between, like, Richard Chase and, for instance, Ted Bundy. Ted, They're both diabolical killers, 
But you couldn't mm-hmm. look at Ted Bundy and say he's crazy or he's nuts. But it's easy no. to look at a guy like Richard Chase and say, well, he's crazy. He's crazy. People yeah. don't say things like that. So you had a lot of very strong paranoia emotions. He was eventually diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, although there were some that didn't agree with that. Without question, he was deeply mentally ill. But he, again, as we get into this story more, when he got into the murders, he, he, it was, he proved by the actions that he took that he was trying to conceal what he was doing, which talked the planning and awareness of what society believed what was right or wrong and that murder was wrong. So, But he was a very, very, very demented individual. Right, but this is one of those cases where it's the very, uh, again, people, you, you can say, well, geez, that's not legally insane, so when you say he's crazy, but those these are the kinds of murders that are so senseless and over-the-top and vicious yes. and yes. humiliating and stuff out of uh, fiction. So, right. Now, Wait. so so, what does he? What, what's his life? Uh, you, you, you're pointing, you're alluding to that his strange behavior becomes a bit of a loner, uh, to say the least. Uh, what's his contact with his family? Is he still living with his family? Tell us what happens after high school. Where does he go? Does he have any career plans? Well, he, what what happens with his life? Well, he he enrolls at American River College in Sacramento, and he's. By that time, you know, he's he's pretty well mentally impaired. His grades are not that great. He drags his schooling out. He is still living at home, but after a, a while, he uh, he met some folks uh, out. Uh, they saw him sitting on his lawn one day, and these uh, these folks were were renting some rooms in the house. They got to talking with him, and they made him a roommate, but. You know, I say in the book, because Chase was not drooling and babbling or whatever, they thought he might make, you know, just he seemed, for the few minutes that they talked, fairly normal. Once he got inside with them, and his father helped him, um, uh, you know, with, you know, the rent, Chase didn't work a lot, but he, he would work some. But his his father would help with that. And then um, they began to see how strange he was. And so it didn't take people too long. Uh, you know, he would do weird things. I mean, like, for instance, they uh, they would uh, have people over, and, uh, you know, he, he would act strange. At one point, he, uh, when, when he was with this couple, uh, he, would, he had his own bedroom, but he boarded up the door. And then he went into the uh, closet and, not, and knocked a hole through that wall so he could come and go. And then he would keep that, you know, boarded up. And so he became very paranoid with them. Uh, it became, he became past living with with, uh, with these folks. And they asked him to leave. He wouldn't, so they left. And then this girl's brother, uh, Rachel, I think her name is Statham. I don't have the book in front of me. But uh, she, her, her, her brother and some of his friends moved in. They had a band. And Richard was always wanting to join in the band, and they would ask him not to, but he would anyway. They would have, <laughs> let's say, some girls over. He would stroll out in the into the room completely nude, and he was just uh, always doing yeah. And he was stoned, and he was high on drugs all the time. So the, as this progressed 
through his early life, and of course, finally he he you know he had to withdraw from American River College because he just couldn't cut it, and uh, yeah. you know, so he would go back to his mother's house on Montclair, which this whole thing is in just one section of East Sacramento, and you know, once he starts committing the murders, they're all. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Done within a radius of about a mile of his home. And uh, his father, uh, once the divorce went through with, he, you know, uh, he, he lived on... Uh, Valkyrie, which is very close to all that stuff, and Montclair was close, so it's all right there. And um, so, uh, after a while, and all of this you have to understand is a progression. And it's, you know, it's the drugs, it's the mental impairment, and the illness, and then uh, usually with a lot of some people, they become harder to deal with, harder to live with. The paranoia will increase. Sometimes there's violence, and this is what what happened with Richard. He would get in arguments with his um, mother, and like when his sister would come over, even when she had left home, uh, and, and he would think that they were poisoning him. And uh, he had slapped his mother once and pushed her down another time, or his father would have to come over to try to calm things, and one time they got in a fist fight uh, in the front yard, and and so he became very, very hard to deal with. And uh, when, on the one occasion when Richard hit uh, his mother, she called the police and he left. He took off running. But of course, the officers came and they said, well, you know, we'll be happy to arrest your son, but you're going to have to, uh, you know, because they didn't witness it. Uh, they said, you have to take a warrant out for his arrest. So she didn't want to do that. So she called the Aquarian Effort, which is a place out there for uh, where people can seek help for mental problems, so on and so forth. And, and so uh, that pushed him into a road of going down that way. And Richard Chase became very interested. He wasn't opposed to seeing doctors because he really, really, really believed that these strange things, his heart was stopping, the 
pulmonary artery was stolen. Bones were growing out through the back of his head. And of course, he'd get in there with these doctors, and and they would, you know, they would write the reports. I've I've been through all the reports. A lot of them are reproduced in the book. And you know, they just, you know, they he's diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. This that, uh, and so you know, he was willing to go down that road. Now, for a while, before these murders occurred, they had gotten Chase on some medication which was actually helping him. And in a case like that, they are these drugs are designed they can't it's not that they, they no longer are schizophrenic or whatever it is, but it can keep some of these things in check to where the improvement uh, could be considered guarded. Uh, but that it could happen. And in Chase's case, there was improvement for a while. His mother said it was for two years. I don't see that in the record. It's not there. His father said it wasn't two years. But the funny thing about it was is that the family was so burdened because, as I say in the book, everybody in the family of a mentally ill person pays a price. They, They suffer along with it. A lot of demands from those folks, and there's a lot of heartache and things like that. So there's a lot of grieving that goes with that, and there's there's financial concern that people can't work. There's a lot of strain on families that take care of people like this. Well, here he's starting to improve. He's at, He was always just very, very thin. It was something he didn't like about himself, but he was so incredibly thin. And he was able to put, I think, some 20 pounds on his frame during this period of improvement when they had him on medication. But his mother did not like the fact that it made him like a zombie. So, of her own volition, without doctor's orders, she had him stop the medication. Well, you know, when you got somebody like this and they're being helped by it, you know, you, you have to be off the wall to, to take them off of it. Because there's no place to go if you take him off the medication. So he went back downhill. And this is not to say that this time of improvement would have continued on the medication, but she guaranteed that it wouldn't continue by taking him off. And, and, and this too, these two, these these are also reports, these doctor's reports, where they go over this in the uh, in his file. And so from there he descended. Well. After the incident where uh, there was some violence, uh, she and her ex-husband moved, you know, him out to a um, a house, really a small little like cottage house behind uh, this other home in that area. He was there for a while. Then he ended up on Watt Avenue in apartment 12. He was there for a while decided he wanted to leave, and then, of course, there's the, uh, by, by that time, he's already killing animals. In fact, the the drinking of rabbit's blood happened while he was in the, um, living in that small cottage. His father used to come over and visit him some, and they'd play chess, and he asked about the rabbits. He said, Richard, why do you have these rabbits? He you know, uh, Chase had bought these rabbits from a guy in uh, Rio Linda, California, and uh, he said, well, they're for eating. Well, you know, Mr. Chase has been used to strange things coming out of Richard for a long time. 
he didn't know that he was drinking his blood. But the ne- either that night or the next day, it, it probably is the next day. I'm not sure. I don't think they're sure. Chase injected himself with rabbit's blood, and he yes. nearly killed himself. He became really, really sick. Father came over, I think, to the hospital. He was, you know, he he was very, very ill for a while, and of course. He did that because he thought he needed it. See, this is the type of mental illness yeah. that this guy was going through, and because nobody would mm-hmm. do that uh, in their right mind. But uh, so anyway, so this progression of killing um, animals and drinking their blood, and uh, you know, uh, Beatrice Chase. I mean, you know, the Chase family had, uh, you know, he had a couple of dogs. I mean, there, there were some dogs and. And she had a cat. He ended up killing all those animals. And before he killed the animals, she would catch him sometimes, squeezing the paws of one of the dogs so hard, or squeezing its jaw, and you know just to see it suffer. See, so, so the progression went from just an odd individual to, you know, saying far out things to being, you know, violent towards uh, his family members. Not. Exceedingly violent, but violent enough, confrontations, physical, not, you know, trying to kill anybody, to then being, you know, cruel to these animals and then killing the animals, drinking their blood. And, of course, once he ha- was off his medication that was helping him, uh, th- really there was no turning back. He was just going to go down this road, which he did, and he started killing humans. That was going to be the ultimate thing anyway. What did the psychiatrist assess? You say they assessed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, but obviously they didn't assess him as a paranoid schizophrenic with uh, you know, homicidal tendencies. So did he, See, that's the funny thing, again, right? a testament to, to his, pardon me? Yeah. See, that's the thing. Most, see, this is the thing, and I can, I can attest to this from having had somebody in our family like this, exactly like this, with the same diagnosis, with the same drug use. And, I can tell you that most of the people that ruin their lives this way, and I'm going to say those who, let us say, did it through the hallucinogenic drugs of the 1960s, for those who change themselves chemically or these imbalances occur, um, they don't usually go down that road. There's a lot of homeless people that are mentally ill, but they usually don't go down the road of violence. And even if they are too violent or too disruptive to live with families, they don't go out and commit murders. And they certainly don't go out and commit the kind of murder, I should say murders, that Richard Chase committed. It just doesn't usually go down that road. So everybody, once this occurs, they're they're wanting to take the, the doctors to task, and they're wanting to take anybody else to task, who let this guy out on the street. But the the problem with all of this is people have rights under the Constitution. And I had a judge tell me once that I was asking to hold my brother longer. He said, listen, he's got rights. They attested he's not a danger to himself or someone else. He's got rights, and he's right. So, you know, they can put holds on people. They can 72-hour holds, but I'm telling you. So... Nobody knew that this guy was going to go down that road. There's a lot of strange people out there who are never going to harm anybody with the same diagnoses. 
let's let's make a distinction right now because I this subject comes up and I always try to make the distinction because we have this particularly infamous case that happened about three years ago, and the person that committed these atrocious murders and cannibalism and and the decapitation on a Greyhound bus is yeah. now afforded uh, walking visits outside the mental facility and he soon will be released within easily within five years despite the uh oh, that, the yeah, uh, outrage from citizens it won't make any yeah. difference so there, there's where we are a difference but here's the thing that i want to say i'd hate right. to be a person with mental illness in the future going to have mental illness or have a family member has mental illness this has nothing to do most vast majority of people that are mentally ill do not hurt anyone uh let alone themselves or anyone right. else this is a person that happens to be a killer who happens to be right. schizophrenic. Right. Let's make that distinction right. because this guy has been, Richard Chase is probably capable of what only a handful of humans oh, yeah. in the last hundred years have been capable of doing. So let's let's make yeah. that distinction because mental illness already has a stigma. We don't need, you know, I don't right. think mentally ill people need to be lumped in with killers who happen to have a mental illness. No, that's true. That's absolutely true. And so even though he has been given this diagnosis of this, it's still most people that have a diagnosis such, such as this, they they don't go down that road. And so once these things occur and there's this uproar, I mean, you know, if you look statistically, it, it it's just this is a, first of all, this type of murder is a rarity. It, it really is. But the, But the thing of it is is that, just because he was mentally ill, you know, there's other factors going on there. And no, most mentally ill individuals don't do this. They are more likely at some point to perhaps take their own lives maybe, but not to go out and commit murders. But anyway, so this is this is where Chase was, and, and, and uh, this was his background, uh, you know, and up until the time when he committed his first murder. His first murder, of course, was nothing like, the additional murders to come. It was, it was it was very different, but he passed that place from where uh, he was going to uh, drink animal blood. But he wanted human blood. Although his first murder, which was the murder of Ambrose Griffin, which was in late right. December, yeah, of uh, of seventy uh, seven. Uh, seventy seven. Yeah, and it was just a drive by shooting, and uh, Chase, you know, lived on on uh Watt Avenue and then just down from Watt is uh, was the street where Ambrose Griffin lived which is uh I think I think Robinson Avenue again I don't have my yep. book in front of me but it's very very Yeah, very it's close. Robertson Avenue. And so yeah, so this is this is so weird. Here you got a guy 51 years old with the Bureau of Land uh management. So around I think around 8:30 at night you know, just after Christmas, and uh, gone to the store with his wife, Carol, and they're coming in the door, bringing in groceries. Inside is uh, their daughter-in-law, Gail Griffin, and then one of the sons. I don't, that's not the one that she was married to. Her husband was somewhere else, but but that but her brother-in-law or their son was in the house, uh, David Griffin. And so they carry in uh, some groceries, and Ambrose comes out. And he's uh, going to get the last bag. And Carol was, I mean, yeah, I mean, Gail Griffin was holding the door. Carol was inside, and her other, her son was inside. 
and all of a sudden, uh, you're like a popping sound, a couple popping sounds. Uh, right. Might even sound like firecrackers. And Carol Griffin comes out in time to see uh, her husband turn and fall. And she thinks he's having a heart attack. And yeah. uh, not putting two and two together. Real quiet neighborhood. You know, it's real quiet around here. I mean, homicides, you know, they're, they're rare and... You know, even though sometimes people have shot around, you know, as I talk about in the book, around the neighborhood, around the creek, and they're out planking with, with their guns, and the people might not like that. There just aren't any homicides like this. So anyway, so, you know, they're thinking he's having a heart attack, and they call the, uh, you know, paramedics, and uh, they get there, pull back his jacket, he's got a blood stain. And he's he's losing consciousness. He he did have a chance to tell his wife that, that he was shot. Well, she's still thinking he had a heart attack. Well... They get to the, you know, the, it, the bullet has just done too much damage. It's weird too because when I was in Sacramento doing the, um, doing the, uh, uh, going through the files, they had real evidence there, and I opened the one thing, and they had the bullet of Ambrose Griffin that had gone into his body, and it had, uh, you know, uh, uh, mushroomed out, you know, from the impact, and and it was odd seeing that. Here I'm writing about this guy, you know, getting ready to write about this guy. And uh, anyway, but uh, so, you know, of course he dies and he gets to the hospital and he's he's basically dead on arrival. And uh, but there's no drinking of blood. This, Chase just wanted to kill somebody. He just wanted to kill. He had been going through the neighborhood, actually, and shooting in homes the days prior to that. And there was a lady named Pileski. Uh, she's uh, doing her dishes one night in the kitchen and here comes a bullet whizzing through the uh, glass and goes yeah. right through her hair. Embedded yeah. himself in the wall or something, and uh, you know, and then people would hear this shooting, and because sometimes people shot around the area, they didn't think too much of it. But yeah, but she, you know, she she called the police or whatever, and you know, they came out and got the bullet and whatever, and then, uh, but yeah, so and so he kills Griffin, and then that's that's the uh, now other than the, other than the, other than the gun caliber, what do cops have in terms of evidence? Like you say, this is a very very early Richard Chase. He wants to kill somebody, but in terms of the the police, this is this is a rare thing—a murder like this. So, what do they conclude at this point in terms of wh- wh- who could? What's the seeming motive, and what do they conclude? And then you yeah. can continue on. Yeah. Well, um, people had different opinions, but the real astute cops—they could see that it appeared to be a motiveless crime. I mean, the more they investigated right. this. They could see that Griffin, this is not a guy that has enemies. Now, it was at night. There was no real evidence there. And they, I mean, the place was swarming with cops even at night, but they, they couldn't see anything. Well, what Chase had done, he had taken this uh, Stoger Arms Luger-style twenty two caliber pistol, pushed it a little bit out the window, and uh, fired it twice, one bullet striking Ambrose Griffin. The shell casings ejected to the right. It's pretty normal. They hit, and of course he's traveling. They landed on his hood, and while they're rolling off the hood, he's traveling down the road, and he's picking up some speed now because I guess he saw Griffin fall. Well, they ended up landing like two or three doors down, about 80 feet, I think, was the longest one. And and the news crew come. This was embarrassing to the police, but the news crew. Uh, came and 
discovered these shell casings as they were trying to set up cameras the next day. One was in perfect condition. I've also held those in my hand. I mean, yeah, they were there. And one's been flattened, which is, it could have been right. stepped on, but more likely a car ran over it. And so anyway, yeah. but, you know, they, they did a lot of canvassing of the neighborhood. It's just regular uh, kind of, you know, uh, organized but, but uh, grueling sometimes police work. And they discovered that, that, that Griffin didn't have enemies, and so this is a motiveless crime. And uh, the guy that worked with me, one of the guys that worked with me, um, uh, Bill Roberts, he, he remembers thinking, and, and I quote him in the book, about that these things, you know, they didn't even use the term drive-by shootings very much, and that these things just didn't happen, not in Sacramento. And uh, so, yeah, everybody was shocked. But, you know, they knew it was a twenty-two caliber, and uh, but this wasn't one of the real diabol- you know, diabolical killings. This was somebody just shooting somebody as they drove by, and that there's no known enemies. They just didn't know what to make of it. And uh, I know one person said that they thought, well, maybe it was just some kids shooting at signs, okay? And that they didn't mean to hit this guy. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. See, all of that speculation, and they didn't know. But on the morning of January 23rd, Chase... uh, committed his next murder of 22-year-old uh, Teresa Wallen. And I got in the book, you know, uh, the Wallens lived on Tioga Way, and that's that their backyard backs up into the back parking lot of a place called the Pantry Market. Well, Chase had been at the Pantry Market that morning, and he was filthy. He was just, he had some crust or of something around his mouth, and he ran into an old high school kind of like friend, an acquaintance, a, a, a woman named Nancy Holden, who was married. Her name used to be Westfall, and she, of course he's he's exuding weirdness. He's filthy, yeah. but he's weird, and she's talking to him and wanting to get away from him. Talking to her inside the store, and she hurries and gets away from him. And as she's leaving the parking lot, he's trying to open her door because he wants to talk to her. She gets away. She looks in her rearview mirror, and she sees him walking towards the bank, the back of the uh, pantry market. Well, Chase is within just a short time of committing the murder of Teresa Wallen. And uh, Teresa Wallen was a state worker, and she was, uh, I think she was working part-time for the state, but she had a day off. Her husband, David, they'd been married several years. She was three months pregnant. And... He goes in uh, her home. He, he cuts 
to the right of the pantry market, doesn't go in Wallen's yard, goes down another three or four houses to the right, and goes right around the front. And this is so bizarre. You think he'd walk down the street, but he goes starts cutting in front across the front lawn and the front porches of these other homes. Well, he crosses over right. a couple named Eastlick, which are like four or five doors up from the Wallens. And he, Mr. Eastlick gets up and looks at this guy. He's barely got a, a shot of him. Okay, so he goes down to the Wallen residence, tries the door, the door's open, and Teresa Wallen is coming through there with a bag. She's just house cleaning. And he shoots and uh, shoots her two two times, and uh, one time a grazer went through her wrist. I've, I've got it in the book. But it wasn't until he shot her like the third time that it pierced her head and, and, and you know, was in her brain. And she collapsed. She wasn't quite dead, but, but she was on her way. And uh, then from that came the diabolical stuff that he did, which I've seen the, I've seen the uh, crime scene photos. It's just ghastly. Really? Yeah, they're just yeah. ghastly. And uh, it's real diabolical stuff. And 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 uh, so he mutilated her. He he drank her blood, and he did those things that that uh, you just you know you just it just sets people apart in the realm of murder. You just it's just really really strange stuff. And so, uh, he, but he's smart enough to wear gloves. And uh, he accidentally left his socks behind. They were bloody, but. They couldn't trace anything by that. So he leaves this scene of carnage, committed in broad daylight, and he goes home and re- waits for the paper to be delivered. And there's a there's a guy there's a there's a deputy named Ivan Clark who shows up at the scene. Now Ivan Clark was a a hardened investigator. Bill Roberts knew him well. They, I think they both went through the academy out there. Then Carl Clark came out of that house was he was ashen. It was so horrible. And uh well, didn't 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 her husband discover his wife though? Talk about ashen. Yeah. You know, yeah, no. Yeah, so I'm the sorry. husband the yeah, husband I'm discovers sorry. his wife. The husband discovered his wife, but Clark was just when he was there later, he was just, you know, overwhelmed by it. And uh he, sure. he, he was ashen, yeah. And uh what I was going to say is that Clark was also, uh, in this case, he was the first one in on the scene of the Marath murders, which was which was the following Friday on, on the 27th. So I was kind of getting ahead of myself. Yeah. But Robert yeah. told me that Ivan Clark worked both of these homicides, and they deeply affected him. Really affected this oh, guy. Well, and absolutely. he wasn't the only. And he wasn't the only one. Uh, I can't remember the fellow's name. I've got it written down, but yeah, the husband came home later. the The officers were called. He, he, in fact, when David Wallen, he was he he worked he worked for a company called National Linen. I think that was he was training a guy to take his place. That might have been his last day, but I can't remember. But he was training this this fellow. Well, they he trains him all day, and he comes and they get off work to go have a couple of beers or whatever, and he and he drives home. And he's going in the front door, and the, it's dark, and the music's on, and he flips on the porch light, and he, he sees what appears to be oil stains in the carpet, and there's garbage strewn all, all over the room. But that, those aren't oil stains. Those are blood stains. He, he had actually killed her in the front room, dragged her body back to the bedroom. 
Anyway, so he's calling out for her. Their dog, Brutus, comes up to him, and he's acting strange. And he goes back in the bedroom, and he sees his wife dead. He only looks at her for a few seconds, but there's no mistaking. She's dead. She's got... Uh, she'd been cut down the middle and stuff was coming out of her and, and she just had, you know, some ghastly stuff happen to her. So he runs across to the neighbor's house, says, my wife's dead, and then he calls the sheriff. The father comes over. He called his father first. Then they call the sheriff's department. Sheriff's department comes over. The two officers come over. Ivan Clark ends up going over there. So everybody shows up. So we got this ghastly scene. Ray Biondi, who is the... Uh, commander of homicide he gets a call i think around nine o'clock or something um no probably earlier than that but anyway so he's called out everybody's there and then he shows up and of course beyond he knows from looking at it and all the officers know that whoever did this is not going to stop they're going to have to catch this guy he's, he's just not he's not going to go away he's going to keep doing this and um, I got a quote in the book from when uh, I think it was it was Bill Roberts and somebody else shows up there. Beyondy makes a remark similar to that. They got to catch this this guy before he does it again. So I mean, you know, the the nobody'd really seen anything like this. I mean, these guys have been to a lot of homicides. It's like this one guy said on the documentary that I saw. He said, "But it's not every day when you see that somebody comes and murders somebody and then cuts them open and moves their stuff around." It just didn't happen. So, anyway, so that's on a Monday. So, here we go. Leg work. Everybody's working overtime. The city's getting this, that area of Sacramento is becoming very unnerved that this could happen in, you know, what, it's still daylight and she's home. It's a quiet neighborhood. Well, yeah. by Friday, Chase goes in and kills just a little bit farther away down on Marywood. Uh, by the Country Club Center, again, in a very close radius, mile, mile and a half from where he lives. And um, he kills uh, Evelyn Maroth and uh, her son Jason. And he kills uh, Evelyn's uh, nephew. And then Daniel Meredith, who liked Evelyn, even though she had a boyfriend. He liked her. All these people were killed. And, And if we have time, I can go into the sequence of it, but... He killed them sure. all, but he didn't kill them all at the same time. Uh, he had parked his car at the Country Club Center, oddly. It was by a concrete planter, sticking kind of out in the lane. He crosses over uh, to Marywood, which dead ends up where the Country Club uh, you know, Center is. He goes down a couple hundred feet to the house on the right, 3207 Marywood, the garage door is open. He gets in through a – there was no forced entry, so they're assuming he went in through the uh, north end of the house through the garage. Daniel Meredith had gone with Jason to pick up some snowshoes because he's supposed to go with the family across the street up into the mountains. And while they're gone, he kills you know, Marath, and then he butchers her. Just some strange things. He cut her eye out and cut around the eye and left it sticking out. It just, you know, it just you just wonder. It just it's so so diabolical. And he he takes the baby and kills the baby. And then he takes the baby and of course 
Meredith and uh, Jason, I guess, are, are still gone, takes the baby and uh, kills the baby there in the crib, takes the baby into the bathroom where he had taken Evelyn Marat, and he sodomized Evelyn Marat in the bathroom. And I say in the book, he could do with a dead body what he couldn't do with a living girl. He had trouble with sex, yeah. but he so you know, and so here here he is with a, a dead person, and then he 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 cuts the back of the baby's head open, and 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 because of the brain matter and the blood, and so they Daniel Meredith comes back and they come into it. Meredith is killed first with a shot to the head. Jason, he's got a bullet wound later they discovered in the back of his neck, so he probably turned to run, but was killed quickly too. Then they were dragged out of the front room to some distance. I think Meredith was left in the hall. But anyway, so here's this other ghastly murder, but the the good thing is is that one thing Chase was, he was a disorganized killer. And it was the chance meeting and there, this is Friday the 27th of January, uh, 1978. The meeting that Nancy Holden had with Chase at the pantry market the previous Monday, once these other murders occur, she tells her, I think it was her father, who was a retired police sergeant, about this strange guy. Uh, was it well, was it, excuse me, what it was, too, is that we glossed over it, too, as well, was, is that this is something very noticeable. And when the description came, it was a man in an orange parka. Uh, yes. Kind of an unusual yes. color for a parka. And then Nancy said, ah, she obviously yes. knew there was quite strange behavior, and she recognized him from high school. And right. then the also also her his neighbor in, in the uh, Watt Apartments, I believe, Don, also put uh-huh. two and two together, but but it really was that orange parka. I think was one of the the big, you know, one of the big things that convinced her as well. You know, uh, well, but did, yeah. Yeah, obviously that chance meeting was very, yes, um, very fortuitous for this, yes. you know, for this case. Yes, yeah. What Nancy Westfall, Chase made such a strong impression on her as being very very weird, very weird, and. When she when she learned that the murder of Teresa Wallen happened on Tioga Way on that Monday, and it's directly behind the pantry market, that right. in conjunction with like the Red Park and Chase acting weird, her father said you've got to let them know about it. So that's how this came down. So it was really a stroke of luck because he had been able to elude police. And so we're looking at he's he's committed the murders of the Marat family on Friday, and then uh, you know it was like the next day when things really started to come together, and when Bill Roberts was uh, trying to locate this person that he had an, uh, an arrest record, and what was interesting to Roberts was is that he had a history of owning twenty uh, twos, twenty two automatic pistols, and so that's exactly what was used in the murders. And of course, once they arrested Chase, then you know they, they they matched the gun immediately to all the murders. Plus, there was a lot of forensic evidence. Of course, I mean, even it goes to the time before that. I mean, there, there was stuff there of, of the babies, and and the you know, there was plenty of evidence even beyond the twenty-two. But when they caught Chase and they had the gun, it it, it matched all all of the murders. 
Teresa Wallen, the, the you know Marath family, and Ambrose Griffin, which was really good. What That's I thought was very at, interesting, and, and and people could relate to it watching Criminal Minds too, is that the uh, the obviously the infamous Robert K. Wrestler and uh, yes. another gentleman were brought in to create a profile. How what, what profile did they create, and how close were they when, when once they did arrest Richard Chase to that profile? You know, I I didn't uh, deal uh, a whole lot, you know, with that. Uh, I think they gave a profile. To to be honest, the police, uh, the the guys I dealt with and the records that I located, there wasn't a whole lot in there having to do with that. They they already knew from the people on Bernice Avenue and who had seen Chase walking around, for instance, they knew they were looking for a scraggly-haired uh, young man, again with the orange parka, but dirty. And so I, I think I, I can't remember what uh, the FBI, uh, the uh, like the evaluation that they did, but I can tell you from the records that the cops working these things, it ha- really happened very quickly. The two main murders, Wallen and the Marath, happened all within the same week. And uh, yeah. they were getting a lot of reports of what this strange person looked like. So I don't know, to be honest, how much the FBI, uh, you know, reports helped them because there was so much going on with just the evidence coming in from uh, the testimony from the people that saw him. Like a lot of people, I think there was probably one, two, three, maybe three people uh, on Tioga that saw him. Uh, right before he killed Wallace. Yeah, Yeah, face to face. So they got a good look at him, yeah. Yeah, they got a pretty good look. Yeah, that's all the profile was. The profile was that he was scraggly, thin, probably had a history of mental illness and drug use, so it was just a general profile. Anyway, it was really, the like you say, the the dogged police work, basically, that, well, it got this. And, of course, a disorganized killer, too, that's, uh, you know, not as careful as he could be. Now, um Tell us about the the arrest and uh, questioning of Richard Chase. Yes, the uh, uh, Ch- Chase was arrested by three detectives. They were all basically like you know rookie detectives. It was Ken Baker, Bill Roberts, and Wayne Irie. And uh, Bill told me, and and he also writes this in the book. Uh, he he said that he had a really strong feeling that Chase was his guy, even before they were they they, they actually located him. Uh, Chase was arrested at the number 15 apartment at Watt Avenue, and um, Ken Baker had called there, and Chase had answered the phone. Now, Ken Baker had acted like that he was, uh, you know, he had had some dealings with him, and Chase kind of got uh, skittish about it and hung the phone up. Uh, so when they went to his apartment, uh, they, you know, he wouldn't answer the door. And so Bill Roberts went up to the manager's office to call while Ken Baker and Wayne Irie stayed there. Now, fortunately, number 14 apartment was vacant. They got the manager to open up and Ken went inside the next door apartment. Listen, they could hear movement inside. So while Roberts is still up there, Ken Baker and Wayne Irie made a pretense of leaving. 
and they were talking kind of loudly that they, you know they would come back. Yeah. But 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 they're actually hiding. <laughs> Case comes out yeah. of his apartment with the box. He's got the 22 and a holster and a jacket on, so you can't see the gun. But he comes out and he's gonna and he he turns to the right to go into the parking lot to get the ranchero. But he sees Wayne Irie two doors up or so, hugging a door. Wayne Irie sees him. He immediately steps out. For a second, he's going to go back into his apartment, but he bolts the other way, and he runs into Ken Baker. Ken Baker's already got his forty-five out, but Chase throws the box at him as he goes by. So Chase just just is trying to get by him, runs right into Baker. Baker hits him in the head with the forty-five, and they're wrestling around on the ground. And by that time, Wayne Irie has gotten up there, and they, you know, they. They're able to get this guy on the ground, and you know, Irie was going to kill him. You know, he on a documentary he said once he said, uh, <clears throat> "We'd I'd already decided if the baby was there, I was going to kill him." But he, you know, he's just not, you know, he's just not like that. He got up to Chase, and he put the gun, his gun, in Chase's ear or something. Told him if he doesn't quit fighting, he's going to blow his brains out. But Chase didn't stop. And, that, and so Ari said, that's when you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not like these people. We're not cold-blooded murderers. So they finally said... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dude, him. he had on him Daniel Meredith's wallet and, uh, and, and I think his keys as well. No, the keys I think were in the box, or no, with the baby. He had already discarded the baby uh, by that church, in, in between the church building and this other building, which they discovered later on. And uh, But anyway, so, of course, he's arrested. Everybody knows that this is the guy. Chase will not admit to anything but killing animals and killing, uh, you know, birds or dogs or whatever. He, he won't admit to killing humans. His admissions to these things came later. Of course, from all of that came the psychiatric reports and, uh, you know, all these many things. And they, they determined Chase was, was you know, uh, you know, he was capable to stand trial. And uh, so, uh, you know, um, uh, Ronald Tochterman was the main prosecutor. His assistant, Al Loker. Al Loker's a really nice guy. I didn't get to talk to Tochterman, but I got to talk to Loker. He's still with the Sacramento, you know, uh, the the uh, Sacramento uh Sacramento County uh, DA's office, so he's still there. He, he he's still in in that office. Uh, so they 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 made a great case against Chase and and and, and Tuckerman really knew how to to do this. Ferris Salome, uh, yeah, Ferris Salome, which was Chase's attorney. He this guy had an uphill battle all the way, and he wanted sure. to yeah. And you know, it was just it was just a foregone conclusion that it was not going to go his way. But he he worked hard, and and uh, I've I've spoken to Ferris on, on, you know on the phone two or three times. He's a, he's a nice guy, but it was an uphill battle, and he was hoping to save Chase from the death penalty, which of course he Chase got the death penalty, but he took care of you know 
you know, uh, things himself, and he ended up, you know, killing himself in uh, in uh, San Quentin. Uh, it's called cheeking your meds. He had been saving up his medications. I always thought that Chase was trying to kill himself, but I talked to Al Loker, and he said, I don't necessarily think so. And when Loker told me why, um, it really made sense. Loker said, you know, he was always thinking all this stuff was wrong with him. He he said, I think a lot of people seem to think that he was probably trying to save up all of this medication to take it one time to really finally knock this stuff out in him. And, of course, he did cure himself, but not in the way he suspected, and he killed yeah. himself. But, uh, yeah, but he was strange. I mean, the doctors uh said to Chase once and said, uh, what are you thinking about right now? He said normal things. And they said, well, what's on the screen in your mind? He said, oh, uh, a 747 jetliner blowing up. Just strange yeah. stuff, you know, just strange. Uh, the You talk about the prosecution being deft and, and effective. Uh, yes. But really it comes to American uh, law. And, and, I mean, even people that watch uh, things like Law & Order will, they have gone over the subject of legally insane. Uh, Tell us if if what I found interesting in your book, too, was the, you know, it never came to me before at all, but with this is that when a person has this uh, attempts, and uh, what other defense would you have but not criminally responsible by virtue of insanity, and you know, insane, but the thing is is that, um, you know, the planning, the the evasion from, from the authorities, but yeah. I, I thought another thing was too is was there any talk of the sexual motivation being a, another thing to dismiss uh, uh, the notion that you know he was insane and, and was uh, was out of control and had no control of his behavior? Did that yeah. sexual did that sexual yeah. motivation come into play at all? In terms well, you know, uh, you know, they they actually said that that. Uh, uh, you know his his uh, what he had done sexually. You know they probably I, I think if 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 I'm remembering correctly, uh, was like a sexual sadist. I mean, they they look at these things as being well. You know he could be cruel. He he, he could be various things. For the prosecution, the only thing they cared about was was Chase aware of what he was doing. Was he aware of right and wrong? And to the prosecution, it didn't matter how cruel or evil Richard Chase might be, because a a truly insane person will not try to cover their steps. You know, they might go out and commit mass murder, but they're making, you know, I mean, they're just doing it. But Chase did try to conceal everything he was doing, and he showed some elements of skill at being able to do it because he didn't leave any fingerprints behind. And he knew that the proper response when they asked him, did he do this? No, I would never do that. So he he knew. So Chase was cruel. Chase was evil. Chase was diabolical. But he wasn't legally insane. And that's the only thing Tochterman wanted to drive home. And he did it. He he just did it wonderfully. And the jury bought it, and they, they did not consider him. Insane, and so that's why I got the death penalty. Absolutely, yeah. It was uh, we we didn't talk about this, but the, the authorities were really kind of spooked by the uh, 
the bloody ringlets that were left at the crime scenes. Yes, I have and a they, photograph they, they, in my book. Yeah, and in fact, you can see a portion of the yogurt cup that he used. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, but but yeah, the ringlets were from a I believe it was a green pail, and they saw those ringlets twice. And in fact, the uh, I'm 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 assuming that that's a, the same pail that uh, he tried to discard. Uh, uh, I won't say categorically. I'd have to ask Bill Roberts, but in the picture where there's a uh, at his apartment where there's the 22 style Luger on that box, there's also a, a, a pail. There was a pail that that he had had there. That could be the very same pail. I'm just not certain, but that's what what made those ringlets. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, you know, you you had the. I guess the good sense. I, I would have went into more description, but it is a, a Richard Chase humiliated, posed, and displayed. Like again, for all those people that watch television and, and are aware of these terms, yes. he is the worst of the worst in terms of. A, I guess it looked like humiliating his his. Uh, I, there was humiliation, the sadism, yes. uh, cruelty. Uh, right. I mean. Th- Never mind, never mind lack of remorse. That's ridiculous. But, you know, yeah. decapitating the baby's head, uh, yeah. it's just, it's evil. That's about, yeah, the best thing is just to chalk it up to a whole lot of evil uh, yeah. coming from this one, emanating from this one person and spreading a lot of terror in that in that area for a short period of time, thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thank God. It was very short. But, I mean, people were... So upset they were buying weapons and people that had weapons, they were making sure they had enough ammunition. And it did cause a lot of people some sleepless nights. And there there were numerous investigators that just had nightmares about this stuff, you know. It was just real different than the average homicide. And it's it Yeah, the, the, the picture of Evelyn Moran, it's just, it's never been really, unfortunately, there's a picture of Teresa Wallen that has been released uh, Sometimes it shows up on the internet. I don't know how that happened, but it's it's been released. But most of the crime scene photographs, in fact, all of them, but that one picture, has never been released. But it's 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 yeah. ghastly. And he had also stuffed uh, dog feces in the mouth of Teresa Wallen. When the investigators yeah. first got that, they they weren't sure what that was. But hey, just very very evil, very diabolical person. But legally sane. Yeah. Yeah, and incredible. It's hard for people to fathom that, that that definition, legally insane. And so the only thing you can really chalk it up to is evil, an now, evil persona. That guy's nuts. We would say he's nuts. He's got to be, but not really. He's just. Uh, and you know what? That gets into a whole other question. How do people get that way? How do they get to where they are so diabolical? You know, it's just very strange. It's it's very odd that some humans sometimes become predators in this way. You know, Theodore Bundy, he would also remove heads. He would do things that were ghastly and diabolical. But as to his person and outward appearance, they're like night and day. You'd never know anything yeah. was wrong with Ted Bundy. if you you know. But Chase, take one look at him. The guy's whacked. I mean, that's that's your first yeah. impression of him. Well, I mean, one is one is a bit scarier than the other. Bundy is scarier than Richard Chase, and only that it's like a Hannibal Lecter is scarier than Richard Chase yes. in that they're cognizant of what they're doing. It's a, like a Dexter. So, but yes. you know, the thing is, is the thing is, how many true crime books I've read, you've read, how many stories that I've read, there is really no answer how people can become like that. The only thing I can, you know, it's an oversimplification. 
is that it's this legion of thrill killers. And now right. you're adding the the allure of, of fame and infamy and, right. and stardom and to a certain extent, like Luca Manata. And what you have is a combination of, of that phenomena in society anyway, totally right. uh, over the top in terms of exaggeration. Right. And and these people doing again a crime that that shocks the world. They, that's what they're right. they're interested in doing. So, you yeah. know that 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 is horrifying for people in fiction, let alone to realize in true life. But I don't think anybody could ever say anything other than these people, to a certain degree, to a great degree, want to uh-huh. do the very very taboo to to experience what no one in yeah. what we would think in their right mind would want to experience. That's, yeah, and that's the only thing I can that, come up with. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why people read about this stuff, because it's so set apart from normal life. It's hard yeah. to believe that this sort of thing can actually occur. And so it's it, it, it interests people because it's like peering into another world, a world that you're never going to walk in, and you think and you stand back from it and you go, how can somebody be like that? And yet there are predators out there that are like that. And of course the, the Bundys and the Chases, they're just they're just the worst of the whole breed and, and like I say, they're rare uh when they become I think when they become that diabolical. You have a lot of mean people in the world and, but the killers in prison when when Chase was in jail, some of these people who had committed murder were complaining that they can't sleep. Because of what Chase had done, and that him being there, yeah. and they're thinking about it. Can you imagine that these were just regular killers? I mean, these yeah. are true. <laughs> they, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do those things. Well, I guess they got what they deserved, huh? To be they did. Outshot. They did. They did. Uh, well, they amazing. had to move Chase into a single cell uh, in the jail because it was just getting out of hand. They were throwing urine on him and passing it down in cups and tossing it in his cell, and so they had to isolate him. But that's really the way it is. Yeah. 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 It's 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 again. It's always almost always unlike criminal minds where people are saved. Uh, this just leaves a trail of carnage and and yeah. you know broken broken uh, lives basically sure. and and not much not much answer and I think that's what it is. It's very much like the I think it's a new genre of a true horror in that yeah. nothing can compare with this because it is true. It is more horrifying. And there is right. no neat, clean answers. Oh, geez, no. they're you know mentally ill. No, they're they're in between. Certainly, no. uh, just inhuman behavior. Right. Know. Absolutely, the most diabolical expression uh, of what a human can do. It's just it's ghastly. I mean, because you know, uh, you, if you get into things that the Nazis did, it's always been hard for me to believe that mm. um, people in, in Nazi Germany and the in the uh, 30s and then into the 40s, could do as a country the kind of things that they did, more organized, but just as diabolical. But here you've got uh, uh, someone that, uh, like Chase or something, that uh, just, you know, coming into people's homes in broad daylight, very random, and then uh, just extremely lethal and completely diabolical, just very strange. I think one thing for the citizens of California to realize, and it's obviously a huge state and a lot of people, and this we're talking yes. about the 70s and the 80s where people didn't lock their doors and all kinds of other silly behavior. 
But, uh, geez, there's a lot of murders from people like Richard Chase and the Night Stalker and all kinds of people where they just left their windows open. You can't leave your windows open. No, you can't leave your doors unlocked or your windows open. I have been saying this for years. I mean, you just can't do it. No. Once in a lifetime, but, you know. But you just you, you can't take the chance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now um, you have this uh, coming. This is uh, released as an ebook. Yes, uh, as an e-book. right now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you, you had said so. It, it's available right now. Uh, Vampire: right The now? Richard Chase Murders. Okay. Yes. Great. And uh, yeah, you've got it. It's uh, uh, one of the new hot new releases on Amazon, so that's uh, very interesting. And uh, I'm sure with all of the hoopla over vampires and, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's never been a time when there, uh, since when we were kids in the 70s where there's been so much emphasis on vampires and Draculas and, and stories yeah. like this. So this is perfect timing. This, is a, this, a, real this is a vampire. case that... W- <laughs> Yeah, and this and this case was not that well known. It really, for some reason, it's not as well known as it's one of the most uh, over the top, bizarre, fascinating cases too. That because, uh, like you say, they didn't know who who was behind these uh, murders, and it really was a, a like a case of criminal minds where they they know they only have so much time because this this seemingly evil person with no leads, no motive is is striking yeah. and and then striking again. So yeah, yeah it was so a, it's a great book. Time. Well thank you so much. I appreciate that, Dan. It's a yeah. I knew from the moment I decided to write it it was gonna be good and once I went to Sacramento and uh looked went over all these areas and, and got into the case file I thought, yeah, it's it's gonna be an interesting book. So, you know, I was glad I was able Absolutely. to do it. Yeah, you've done a great job, and it's another uh, really spellbinding story too. And I, and you know, it's uh, it's interesting because I knew of the case, but uh, reading all the detail of it's it's just a horrifying. You really bring the reader into the horror of what they find in in these homes. And, right. Uh, yeah, it's it's just it's incredible. The terror is really uh, you've captured that, and uh, I think yeah. that's what people will come away with is. Uh, Again, the good old days weren't all that good either. So there's, uh, we've got. <laughs> yeah, I think it's beneficial for people to remember what humans are capable of, and you, you know, it's just if it's happened and it's a part of our history, it needs to be known and it needs to be remembered. And uh, yeah, it's just you know, just people need to understand that certain people are very evil and 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 they'll do some very horrible things. And there's been a lot of people that have done horrible things to other people, to innocent people, and it's just it's it's a reminder to us all. Yeah, it's just interesting though. Though the citizens that were that were, uh, you know, that were uh, cognizant of what ha- happened and made the effort to contact, we've heard horror stories of people contacting authorities and those people being ignored. In this case, we have, uh, you know, police work that. That's very effective, and uh, yes. so yes. you know, relatively, relatively, this could have gone on for years. As many of these yes. kinds of serial killers, this guy absolutely had the potential. If this is what he escalated to in a short period of time, in a few months, right. my God, yeah. who knows? Well, I, I mean, yeah, and you know. I say in the book that I say the the one thing the police had going for them is that even though Chase was trying to be careful, he was still a disorganized killer. He didn't clean himself up very well. 
He was very weird, and he was killing in a geographically small area. So yeah. there were some things that were working against him. And But had he not stopped and talked to Nancy uh, Holden that day, uh, yeah. I'm sure Chase would have killed again. He would have wiped out another family or something. And, but he would eventually be, been caught. I don't think he'd have lasted as long as, as like Ted Bundy. But they were so, you no. know, it just, no, no I, but it just, uh, yeah, it could, you could almost mark it down. If it wouldn't be for that chance meeting, he would have killed again. Yeah, absolutely, and we don't know how fast that they would have, you know, he, he was leaving evidence behind, but like you say, it was the, it was also the time before DNA, and so right. whether he's ur- urinating in a, in a, in some and baby defecating. clothing and defecating. Yeah. I mean, sure, they in the yeah. DNA, but nobody even heard the term DNA. So, and they certainly were many oh. years away from utilizing Absolutely. it. So. Absolutely. Yeah, so it was. Absolutely. Yes. Anyway, Kevin, I want to thank you very much for those listening. You've been listening to Vampire: The Richard Chase Murders by Kevin M. Sullivan. Uh, thank you very much, for Kevin, and uh, a grand, Pleasure great book, here. great, great idea for a book. And uh, thank <laughs> you very much for this interview. Thanks, Dan. Talk to you next time. Okay. Good night, Kevin. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.